Here we are at the cross. We're brought to Calvary. And to observe all that took place there as the evangelist has recorded it. There were some amazing things that happened at the time when the Lord Jesus died. Certain miraculous happenings occurred at the time when Jesus was upon the cross. And those unusual and mysterious events are recorded in each of the Gospels. Some of them in one Gospel, some in another. But you take the entire record together. In Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, it tells us about the various things that took place when Jesus died that were out of the ordinary. For example, in this chapter, in Mark chapter 15, The Bible talks about a supernatural darkness that descended upon the scene when the Lord Jesus died. We read about it in verse 33. And when the sixth hour was come, and as we've indicated, that was noonday. That was that time when the sun would be at its highest point in the sky. Therefore, at its brightest. When it should have been at its brightest, the Bible says... There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. The word land is capable of the translation earth. And it's my own view that this entire planet was engulfed in darkness when Jesus died. The Lord pulled a veil, a curtain, a drape, if you like, over the scene when the Lord Jesus was being punished for our sins. I wonder what the people who were there thought when that happened. When suddenly, as the hymn writer said, well might the sun in darkness hide and shut his glories in. When Christ the mighty maker died for man the creature's sin. That's what happened. The light of the sun was extinguished completely. There was a darkness that could be felt that engulfed the scene. And it lasted for three hours. This was not a mere eclipse of the sun. Some years ago, recent years, there was an eclipse that took place. We were in South Carolina at the time. It was a quite amazing experience to be outside when it was bright sunshine and then All of a sudden, we were in virtual darkness, but not altogether dark. But it only lasted for a very short space of time, a matter of seconds. This was not an eclipse of the sun. This was God putting the light of the sun out for three hours. Supernatural. Inexplicable. Mysterious. Unusual. But very appropriate when you think of the fact that the one who's on the cross is no ordinary man. As well as that supernatural darkness, we think about other supernatural happenings at the cross. If you go back to Matthew chapter 27, there are a number of things that the evangelist points out there that happened at the time of Christ's death. For example, in Matthew 27 51, 
We read at the end of that verse, and the earth did quake and the rocks rent. This was a virtual earthquake. It was an upheaval that took place in the earth. I wonder what people thought when that earthquake was taking place. But it also tells us that, verse 52, the graves were opened and many bodies of the saints which slept arose. In other words, those who were dead came to life and came out of the graves after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. Can you imagine the reaction of people when they're walking down the streets of the city and they see old Jacob, whose funeral they had gone to. And he's alive. What did people make of that? It wasn't just one or two people that that happened to. But the scripture says that the graves were opened and many, many bodies of the saints which slept arose. So there's a whole plethora of God's people who had died who now revived and came to life. Of course, eventually they would have died again, because this was not the resurrection. The resurrection is yet future. The Lord Jesus is the first fruits. Afterwards, they that are his at the resurrection. So everybody who had died and was raised to life, like those in the Old Testament, raised by Elijah and by Elisha, those in the ministry of Christ, like Jairus' daughter, the young man who was the widow of Nain's son, who was risen at his funeral, and also Lazarus. Each of those, at a future time, died again. Imagine having two funerals for the same person. Someone had died, they came to life, and then they died again. That happened. Most unusual inexplicable events. No one living at that time could have explained what was going on. But as as I said earlier, it's appropriate to think of the one who was dying upon the cross that these unusual events surrounded his death. But there is another event, another great miracle, and we've looked at this before in studying the miracles surrounding the cross. And I want to draw your attention to it today. It is the rending of the temple veil into two at the time of Christ's death. Now this particular event is not recorded in the Gospel of John, but it is mentioned by all three of the synoptic Gospels. And they're called the synoptic Gospels because the word synoptis really speaks of that which is seen together. So, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the synoptic Gospels. They, they see together. John is somewhat different. And I'm not going to go into an explanation today of the differences between the four Gospels. But nonetheless, the rending of the veil of the temple is not mentioned in John's Gospel. But it is here in Mark's Gospel, as well as in Matthew and in Luke. The verse that I'm thinking about is Mark 15 and verse 38. And the veil of the temple was rent, which means torn, in twain or in two, 
from the top to the bottom. This was a remarkable event. This was a miracle. This was something that could not be explained in merely human terms. But it's something that happened, and it happened for a particular reason. It happened, obviously, because God purposed it. So let's think about this. This is something that contains a message for us that's, that's wonderful. A message that is encouraging to the heart of every child of God. The veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. I want us to consider several things about the veil that was rent. First of all, we'll think about the reason for that veil. Why did that veil exist? It's called here the veil of the temple. But, of course, the temple, as it was built, the second temple, actually took the place in the land of Israel of the tabernacle in the wilderness. The tabernacle, as you will remember from our studies in it, was a tent. Something that could be folded up and moved and did journey with the children of Israel. But it was set up in the wilderness. And the tabernacle, the tent, and the temple, which was more of a permanent structure, were, were different in many respects. One of them being the permanence of the one as opposed to the other, relative permanence. But the veil in both of them was very much the same. And the veil in the tabernacle and the veil in the temple really were there for the same purpose. Now let's go back in our Bibles to the book of Exodus. If you read Exodus from chapter 25 to the end of the book, chapter 40, it speaks of the making of the tabernacle and all the various furnishings and everything connected with it, which speaks to us, of course, of the Lord Jesus Christ. But in the midst of this, Exodus chapter 26, you have an explanation of the veil and what it was all about. And remember that what is predicated here of the veil of the tabernacle is also true of the veil in the temple. That's why we're reading this. Exodus, 30, Exodus 26, verse 31. God is saying this to Moses. And thou shalt make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet and fine twined linen of cunning work with cherubim shall it be made. In my studies in the Pentateuch for our seminary students, I was reading a book which I wish I'd never bought, in which the writer asserts that those who see in the various colors and the dimensions of the altars and the veil and so on, things that speak of Christ, are actually guilty of mere speculation rather than proper exegesis. And I say to that, bunkum. Because all of these things speak wonderfully to us of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I would love for that individual, if he ever makes it to heaven, when he meets Henry Saltow and some of those other great men of God who saw wonderful things in the tabernacle, I'd love for him to have a chat with them about what they had found. 
But that aside, notice it says here in verse 31, with cherubim shall it be made. Remembering that when you see in your authorized version cherubims, it's only there to remind you that there was more than one, but actually the proper way of saying it is cherubim. Because you don't say one man and two men's. Right? You don't say one woman and two women's. So it's one cherub and two cherubim. Anyway, it's there so that we can understand that it is plural. With cherubim shall it be made. And thou shalt hang it upon four pillars of shittim wood overlaid with gold. Their hooks shall be of gold upon the four sockets of silver. And thou shalt hang up the veil under the tashes that thou mayest bring in thither within the veil the ark of the testimony. And the veil shall divide unto you between the holy place and the most holy. And thou shalt put the mercy seat upon the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. And thou shalt set the table without or outside the veil and the candlestick over against the table on the side of the tabernacle toward the south. And thou shalt put the table on the north side. And thou shalt make an hanging for the door of the tent of blue and purple and scarlet and fine twined linen wrought with needle work. This is a description of the veil. And you will remember, no doubt, when we studied the tabernacle, we mentioned that it was a structure that was divided into three sections or parts. There was an outer court that had a perimeter fence made out of fine linen. In that outer court, there was a great brazen altar where they offered sacrifices. There was also a huge dish known as the laver, like a big bowl in which the priests would wash. Then there would be a hanging at the door of the tabernacle structure itself. When you went in through that first veil, there was a room called the holy place. In there you had several things. You had a table upon which there were little loaves, twelve of them, the table of showbread. It speaks of Christ, the bread of life. There's also in there a candelabra with seven strands to it. The menorah, we might call it. The lampstand, it gave light. Those lights were lighted by the priest on a daily basis. There was also in there, up against another veil, an altar called the altar of incense. And there the priest would offer incense. That was a place where he interceded, where he prayed for the people. Remember whenever Zacharias was doing the job of a priest there in Luke's Gospel, it tells us that the people were outside at the time of the offering of the incense. There were prayers being offered. But in front of the priest there in the holy place was this second veil. And this second veil divided the holy place from what is known as the most holy. We often call it the holiest of all. Or we call it the holy of holies. It's all the same thing. Inside there was the Ark of the Covenant or the Ark of the Testimony. And dwelling there between the two cherubim that were on the lid of the mercy seat was the presence of God. The Shekinah, the glory of God in a cloud. When the congregation of the people of Israel assembled, they were in the outer court. 
The holy place, the first room of the tabernacle, was where the priests of Israel ministered on a daily basis. But the most holy, or the holiest of all, that special room, sometimes called the Holy of Holies, could only be entered on one day per year by one man, the high priest. And the day on which he entered was the Day of Atonement. You can read about all that happened on the Day of Atonement in Leviticus chapter 16. But you can also read about it in the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 9, it actually says in verses 6 and 7, Now when these things were thus ordained, the priests went always into the first tabernacle. That's the first room. The holy place. Accomplishing the service of God. But into the second, that's the second room. The holy of holies, the holiest of all, went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. The Holy Ghost is signifying. See, it does mean something. There is typology here. The Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while as the first tabernacle was standing. Then it goes on to speak of Christ and His work in going into the holy place having obtained eternal redemption for us. But when we think about the outer court contained the brazen altar of the sacrifice and the laver symbols of the blood sacrifice of Christ and of the cleansing that's needed in order to come to God. Then there was the holy place for the priests only, that first room. It had within it three manifest symbols of the presence of God, the table of showbread, the golden candlestick, candelabra or lampstand, and the golden altar of incense. Then in that holiest of all, there was the ark of the covenant or testament, and its lid, the mercy seat, with two angelic figures graven or sculpted from the same piece of gold. They were called cherubim, and upon that the cloud, which was the manifest symbol of the presence of God and of His glory, the Shekinah. There were two veils, one that led from the outer court into the holy place, but that second veil that led into the most holy place. It prevented not only the people, but even regular priests from entering to where the glory of God dwelt upon the mercy seat. Both of those veils actually barred the way to God. But the one that we're speaking of in connection with the cross of Christ is that second veil that hung in the temple. It was all set out the exact same way as the tabernacle, same design. And you had the holy place and the most holy and so on. But this second veil actually speaks to us very clearly of the separation that is brought about through man's sin. And this brings us to the reason for the veil. The message of that second veil to the priests of Israel was this. Thus far, but no further. You can come to this altar of incense, but you can't come any further. You're not allowed into the immediate presence of Almighty God. Now why was that? Well, it was because of sin. 
Sin was responsible for the very existence of that veil. It was a curtain, if you like, a very thick and long curtain of certain dimensions. But it was a curtain, a veil of separation. Sometimes we think today of a veil. We think of that little piece of muslin or whatever it is that comes over the bride's face and you can kind of still make her out before they pull the veil back. That's not what we're talking about here. When it says a veil, it actually means a thick curtain. You couldn't see through it. And it was a very real symbol of separation from God. Now look carefully at Exodus 26 again and verse number 31. Because it tells you something there. Exodus 26 and verse 31. Something that's really important. At the end of that verse, as we pointed out, With cherubim shall it be made. What does that mean? Well, it means that those angelic figures were sewn into the fabric of the curtain. They were actually part and parcel of the curtain, but they were sewn in with needlework. Two angelic figures called cherubim. Now, where are cherubim first mentioned in the Bible? Well, you go back to Genesis chapter 3. And we read in verse 24... About the Lord God and the Garden of Eden. And it's talking here about Adam and Eve. It says, so he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubim. It's written there with a capital C. And a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. Those angelic figures were there Because of human sin. They were there to speak to Adam and his wife of the fact that they had sinned against the Lord. The fellowship with God was was broken. And so they they were not allowed now into the immediate presence of God at the tree of light. And so you come to what happened in the tabernacle and then in the temple. Those angelic cherubim pictured on the veil woven into the fabric of the curtain why were they there they were there as a permanent and constant reminder to the priests of their sinfulness and the fact that sin is what separates us from God and his fellowship the priests could not go from the altar of incense into the immediate presence of God into the holy of holies There was a division. There was a veil of separation. Sin is what separates you and I from God and his fellowship. And the only way to pass beyond that actual veil that was in the tabernacle and then in the temple was by the blood of the sacrifice that was brought within the veil on the annual day of atonement as we read about in Hebrews chapter 9. The high priest would come once a year with the blood in the basin. He would go inside that veil and he would sprinkle the blood before the mercy seat and on the mercy seat. And there was acceptance with God there in his immediate presence. One day per year on Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. 
The veil was there for a reason. It's to remind us that our sins are a constant obstruction. They are a barrier to communion with God. People who are not saved talk about saying their prayers and going through perhaps some sort of a ritual that they've always done since they were little. I'm not saying it's not a good thing to teach your children to pray. It's a very good thing to do that. But they need to come to that place in their lives where they actually are saved by grace and they come into a place of communion with God where they can actually really pray and be heard. Isaiah 59 says in the first two verses, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But, but, your iniquities have separated between you and your God and your sins have hid his face from you, that he will not hear. There's a problem. The problem of sin that has to be taken care of before God will hear us. And that great veil that was hanging in the temple was a perpetual reminder and a symbol of man's sin that separates him from God. That's the reason for it. But then we notice the rending of it. Mark tells us in his gospel that it was rent in twain. That means it was torn in two from the top to the bottom. Torn into two pieces right down the middle. And we know that from what Luke tells us in his version of events. In Luke chapter 23 and verse 45, the Bible puts it this way. And the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was rent in the midst. In the middle. Right down the middle. But who did it? Who tore that veil into two pieces? Remember, this is a unique event. This had never happened before. During a period of about 15 centuries... How can we explain what happened when Jesus died on the cross at that specific hour? Well, we have to say that there was a, super, there was a supernatural power by which it was rent. This was not rent by human hands. This is something that God did. Of that there can be no doubt whatsoever. And we say that for a number of reasons You'll notice that it doesn't say in Scripture that the veil just fell to pieces. That it just fell to bits. That it came apart in several pieces. Some smart people would try to say, well, you know, it's been up there so long it was starting to become, like many curtains do, rotten and ready to fall apart. And it just it fell apart and fell to the ground. And then the evangelists thought that it was rent by God that's satanic unbelief that's what the devil wants you to say about every scripture that speaks of supernatural things there was no flood there was nobody called Noah there wasn't somebody called Jonah there was no whale Jesus didn't walk on water he didn't heal the blind he didn't make the sick 
to be whole. He didn't raise the dead. This is how the devil approaches the Scriptures. This is how men who are supposed to be ministers oftentimes handle the precious Word of God. And as they speak, you can hear the hiss of the serpent behind their tongues. Any man who stands up and denies the miracles of the Bible has no place in a pulpit. He should just go on someplace and speak to a bunch of atheists at an atheist gathering. Not in a church. No, friends, it doesn't say that the veil just fell to bits, that it was rotten, it came apart in several pieces. It was not a decayed or a rotten curtain that fell to pieces onto the ground. It was rent in twain. It was torn in two from the top to the bottom. That's what the Bible tells us. Think of that, torn down the middle into two equal pieces. It was rent, you will notice as well, not from the bottom to the top, but from the top to the bottom. And it has been observed by many commentators that this reminds us that what happened was not the work of an earthly power, but a heavenly power. It was torn from the top to the bottom. A big massive veil supernatural activity cut that veil in two the Lord didn't even need a pair of scissors he cut it in two because it was a supernatural power by which it was rent but more than that there's a significant period when it was rent when did it happen? this is really important verse 37 of Mark 15 tells us when it happened this wasn't just at any time This was at a particular time. And Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. That would have been that scripture which is found in one of the other Gospels. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. It is finished. And when he said, Titelestai in the Greek, one word, finished, done, completed, It was then, verse 38 tells us, and the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. At that moment, at that very time, just after Jesus had cried out in victory, it is finished, and he died. Then the veil was rent in twain. What a coincidence, eh? What a happenstance. No. This was of tremendous significance. We know that it was at the very hour of God's appointment, because all things happen at the time of God's appointment. And we should remember that. Even as Christians, the various things that happen in our lives, they happen in His time. That curtain, that veil, which actually separated the way into the immediate presence of God, it barred the way, it was opened up, At the time of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. As Hebrews puts it. The way into the holiest was made manifest. The obstruction was removed. And that's something that happened literally in the temple. What an amazing thing. As the priests would have been ministering there in the holy place. That that veil just parted in two. And we'll say something about that in a moment. 
But let me say this, of what happened literally in the temple indicates something that was happening spiritually. The purpose of the veil was taken away. One preacher put it like this, the veil of the temple resigned its office. You see, the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ over sin, over Satan, and over hell was accomplished. The Lord Jesus Christ came to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. To put away that which separated us from God. That veil with the cherubim that was a sign and a symbol that we couldn't come into God's presence. It's now removed. And so that's a symbol and a sign of the victory gained by the Saviour. And of the accomplishment of that work of salvation that he had wrought. Now look at verse 34 of Mark 15. And at the ninth hour Jesus cried with a loud voice. And then you have these words in Aramaic that are translated into English. Which is being interpreted, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The Lord hung there for those three hours of darkness. And then he died when he gave up the ghost saying, it is finished. The veil was rent asunder at the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, if you study it in Scripture, that's like three o'clock in the afternoon, that would have been when the priests were in the holy place in the temple offering up what is called the evening sacrifice. Now, that's terminology you'll find throughout the Scripture. If you go to 1 Kings chapter 18, where it talks about Elijah and the prophets of Baal, and Elijah drew near to the altar of the Lord to offer unto the Lord the bullock. What time was it? It was at the time of the evening sacrifice. And you can study that through the scripture. The margin actually gives it in the Hebrew between the two evens. It is in the afternoon at the ninth hour. What was happening then? Well, it was the evening sacrifice. And so the priests of Israel would have been at that very moment inside the holy place of the temple, right up against that veil. Now just imagine their reaction when that great veil all of a sudden parted into two in front of them. And those men saw for the first time in their lives ever, right into the most holy place, into the holy of holies, where was the mercy seat and the Ark of the Covenant? Human eyes saw and witnessed the rending of the veil. How could they fail to recognize the significance of that moment? Because just then Christ was on the cross crying, it is finished. Now some will say this is speculation. Perhaps it is. But it's interesting, is it not, to read in the book of Acts, in the chapter 6, and in verse 7. And the word of God increased, 
And the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. Why does the Lord tell us that? A great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. We think of this in the context. These were men who were converted. But there were men who had been ministering in the temple and must have included men who witnessed that amazing event of the veil being rent in twain from the top to the bottom. See, before this miracle occurred, the high priest of Israel had to come inside the veil on one day per year only with the blood of animals. But that was now done away with. Because the blood of Jesus had been shed once and for all. And now the holiest of all was open to all who would come. The veil is rent. And now Jesus stands before the throne of grace. So we see here the rending of the veil because the veil was now obsolete. It served no useful purpose. Because sin was removed by the sufferings of Jesus. And that brings us to think of this third thing. And that is the replacement of the veil. That veil in the tabernacle and then ultimately in the temple was a type of Christ. Of that I have no doubt. The various things that are spoken of the veil, its descriptions, the colours, the fine linen and so on. It is all significant. The blue, speaking of that which comes from heaven. The red, speaking to us of the blood that was shed. In fact, they got the red dye to dye the various pieces of cloth from grubs that were put into a pestle and mortar. And their blood was then used to soak the cloth And is it not significant that in the book of Psalms, in Psalm 22, the Lord is seen to say, I am a worm and no man. One who was crushed, that his blood might avail for our sins. You have the purple. Purple is a combination of blue and red. You'll know that if you do any art. Mix the red paint, mix the blue paint together, you get purple. The Lord Jesus' perfect blending of heaven and earth. The one who suffered and shed his blood is the one who is the Lord from heaven. The blue and the red together. The purple, the royal color. He's the king of heaven. And then you have the part where it says that it was of fine linen. The fine linen, Revelation 19, speaks of righteousness. The fine linen is the righteousness of saints. Which of course is not their own. It comes from Christ. The veil was suspended by gold hooks. Reminds us that the humanity of Christ, the veil of flesh, was supported by his deity. The purple reminds us of his royalty. They mocked him in purple and bowed to him as king. And the veil of his humanity was torn in two by God at the cross. Jesus suffered to put away sin and allow us as poor wretched sinners to come into the presence of of a holy God, and be accepted by Him. And we could read in that connection, Hebrews chapter 10, where it speaks of coming 
into the holiest of all by the blood of Jesus, by the new and the living way. We come through the rent veil of Christ's body into the holiest of all. And he is our great high priest who now appears for us in the holy place in heaven. Hebrews chapter 9 teaches us this. We can have fellowship with God today because the great obstruction of our sin has been removed by the sufferings and death of Jesus. He is the replacement for the veil, if you like. And we can now come within the veil to fellowship with the Lord. It's a wonderful thing to know that you've entered by faith into the benefits of the death of Christ. This is not just history. This is something that means something to you. Your sins have been taken away by the work of Christ if you're a believer. And those who are not believers, if they die in their sins, the Lord Jesus said of such, where I am, you cannot come. Thank God men and women may come to Christ today and have all their sins forgiven. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanseth us from all sin. We can say today that the veil is rent. Lo, Jesus stands before the throne of grace and clouds of incense from his hands fill all that glorious place. His precious blood is sprinkled there before and on the throne and his own wounds in heaven declare his work on earth is done. Tis finished. On the cross he said in agonies and blood, Tis finished. Now he lives to plead before the face of God. Tis finished. Here our souls can rest. His work can never fail. Because by him our sacrifice and priest we enter through the veil. Within the holiest of all, cleansed by his precious blood, We say to God, before thy throne thy children fall and worship thee, our God. The Lord Jesus is the replacement for the veil. He even talked about destroying the temple and then raising it in three days. And they thought he was talking about Solomon's temple, but he spake of the temple of his body. When we come to God, we come through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. What wonderful things the Bible teaches concerning our Lord Jesus Christ. And when he cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost, there was that supernatural rending of the veil in the temple. The veil has never been put back. The veil has never been put into place again. Because Jesus died. And therefore we have access to God through him. May the Lord help us to avail ourselves of that access. May we be found often at the throne of grace, pleading the merits of our Lord Jesus. May God bless the word to our hearts for his own glory.